Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast, a curated series of interviews and discussions highlighting the three shields of orthopedic surgery at Mayo Clinic, clinical practice, research, and education. Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ortho Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kalechia Corja, and we have the pleasure of having my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rafael Sierra, here with us today. Dr. Sierra obtained his medical degree at the Pontifical Xavier University and completed his residency training here at the Mayo Clinic. He then completed three separate fellowships through the Insaw Scott Kelly Institute, the Mueller Foundation, and the University of Miami. Dr. Sierra has an extensive research background and is well known for his work both here and internationally. He currently serves as the chair of our adult reconstruction department here at the Mayo Clinic. We are lucky to have Dr. Sierra with us here to speak today. Welcome, Rafa. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Great to be here with you today. So we're going to talk about three articles, and there are a series uh, of articles uh, performed here at the Mayo Clinic. The first one is titled Redefining the Natural History of Osteoarthritis in Patients with Hip Dysplasia and Pingent. The second one is the natural history of the dysplastic hip following modern PAO. And the third is hitting the target, the natural history of hip based on achieving an acetabular safe zone following PAO. So what, how did the idea for these studies come about? Well, you know, so there's always been this voodoo, I guess you could call it, voodoo notion of non-believers in PAO surgery, that why are we doing this big operation if we haven't been able to prove that it actually alters the uh, problem, which is trying to avoid, you know, end-stage hip arthritis and eventual total hip replacement. So, um, you know, I was thinking about a way where we could actually determine what the true natural history of this condition, because we all know that we see patients with mild hip dysplasia or hip dysplasia come into our clinic, some of them with pain, some of them without pain. There was, there was one paper written in the 1990s, actually 1995, by Reinhold Gans, who, uh, who actually invented the periacetabular osteotomy on, um, the on some natural history of, of the PAO. And what he reported was a group of patients that made it to age 65. And he showed that if patients had certain criteria, which was indicative of mild tip dysplasia, they could make it to age 65 without any problems. So essentially not every single patient, you know, that has hip dysplasia will need a hip replacement at a young age. So, um, you know, I thought, uh, well, there must be a way to look at this here and the good news is we do because we have our total joint registry and our total joint registry has been housing all our hip replacements since March 3rd, 1969. Uh, that's when the first FDA approved total hip replacement was done in the, in the United States and it was done by Mark Coventry. So we've saved all these x-rays and they've been archived since then. And so we thought, well, what if we go back and look at all these patients that were less than 55 years of age that needed a hip replacement and that had a contralateral uh, native hip? So we did that. And obviously we came out with 
thousands of patients. I mean, just imagine the thousands of patients that we had there. So we thought, well, that's a lot of patients that we have. I mean, we're talking about thousands of patients and some of them had contralateral hip replacements already. Some of them had end-stage hip arthritis already. Others had a completely normal hip. So in order to determine what the normal progression of a hip was, was to take those that had only an absolutely normal hip, which is fairly rare to have end-stage hip arthritis on one side and then a fairly normal hip on the other. And it and sounds like that's what kind of differentiated this paper from previous papers that have charted the same paper. thing. Yeah, previous papers had looked at just a, a normal, you know, an x-ray and said, okay, let's follow these patients. And so what made the difference here was that we took patients that had no arthritis at all. And so these patients, I think we had close to 200 patients, uh, 176 or so. Um, and then we looked at those first x-rays and, and classified them into what we consider to be a dysplastic hip based on standard criteria. An impinging hip, that's another subset of patients that have an abnormal shape to the, femoral, to the femur or to the socket either over coverage or a cam deformity, and then what we consider to be a normal hip. And then we looked at every single x-ray uh, after that for those patients. And those were close to 2000 x-rays that were reviewed at different timeframes um, over an average of 20 years, but it went from 10 to 35 years of follow-up. And then we reviewed the radiographic changes at different time points. And we were able to determine then the progression of the x-ray, uh, of the hip x-ray on those individual patients. And um, it was pretty clear that the patients with the dysplastic hip had the quickest progression, uh, followed by those patients with impingement. And then the hips that we had uh, categorized as normal actually had the least amount of progression. So that gave us the opportunity then to publish this paper showing the natural progression of the dysplastic hip over a 20 year period. Um, right. So we, so we break down those categories into normal hips, dysplastic hips and impinging hips. And, and so what does this do to change our practice? Are we saying that maybe in the dysplastic hip, we should operate sooner than an impinging hip or, or what do these findings tell us? Well, no, not necessarily because we still only wanna operate on those patients that have pain. But what it, what it tells us is that, um, that what I think tells us most importantly, and that's probably not written in that paper or maybe it is, but it's kind of faintly said, is that um, dysplasia uh, progression is unrelated to activity. Because remember that these patients had, had a contralateral hip replacement, which already, and most of them were probably told you can't be as active, you can't do this, you can't do that. And so those impingement is, is more a an, an motion-induced problem. The hip patient has to come up and hip his hip constantly to cause damage. Well, dysplasia is not. Dysplasia is an edge loading problem. It's an abnormal load through the hip that cannot be correcting, corrected by not doing activities. 
just by walking causes. Obviously worsened by running, but walking causes it. So I do think that that's why we see a, a, a more rapid progression in these patients because those that had impingement and normal hips were not active enough to cause that quick damage. Okay, that's a key finding um, that, that dysplasia is unrelated to activity, whereas impingement progression is related to motion and loading the hip. Mm -hmm. Great finding. So that was the first study. And it sounds like the second study titled The Natural History of the Dysplastic Hip Following Modern PAO looked for factors that are associated with great outcomes and poor outcomes after PAO. Yep. What, what so, did you find in that study? So this uh, study piggybacked on our last study. So if you look at the first study closely, you'll see some tables looking at the progression in tonus grade. That's the radiographic grading. Um, at 10 years and at 20 years for dysplastic hip, impingement hips and normal hips. And if you look at those tables, uh, there's a, there on one, on the X axis, there's the progression over time. And on the Y axis, there's the progression where they started out with um, at that time point, at different time points. And you can, if you start with a tonus zero, and this is for dysplastic hips, uh, patients have about a 20%, uh, about a 75% risk of any degenerative changes at 20 years. And about a 25% chance of having end-stage hip arthritis or a hip replacement at 20 years. So that means that one in four hips dysplastic hips need a hip replacement at 20 years, but three and four have degenerative changes at 20 years. So what we did was we took those numbers, what we consider to be natural history, and we compared it to the same or similar patients that had undergone a periacetabular osteotomy. So then we came up with the same tables. And again, we looked at all the x-rays in follow-up, and obviously we don't have 20-year follow-up, but through uh, a specific um, statistical analysis, we were able to come up with the years, the potential years that a patient would be risk-free of requiring hip replacement or progression. And we were able to, to determine that at 10 years, instead of being 11%, it was 4% risk of total hip replacement. And at 20 years, instead of 25%, it would be 11% or something like that. So in, in summary, we were able to determine with a periacetabular osteotomy, about a 50% decreased risk in hip replacement or progression of arthritis with the procedure, which is huge because we had never really documented the change in the natural history. So going back to the, the patients that had no PAO and comparing it now to the patients that had PAO, we were able to determine you know, that clearly we were changing the natural history of the condition. That's great. And, and so also I saw a little piece in there about the tonus grade at the time of surgery. And it said yeah. that patients with tonus grade of zero had a stark decrease in chance of progression of hip arthroplasty compared to patients with tonus grade two. 
And so my question is, if you have a patient that comes in with hip dysplasia and has that tonus grade two, what does your preoperative talk consist of? Are you telling them it's maybe better to wait on having a PAO or are you still doing a PAO? What is your conversation with them? Yeah, so, you know, today and, you know, the, the literature has also shown this previously, even the 30-year, you know, paper from the, the burn group showed that after tonus two, the results go down dramatically, uh, the results. So today I would not do a, a patient, a PAO in a patient with a tonus two. And even with a tonus one, those patients, the results are not as good as patients that have excellent cartilage, which is a tonus zero. But we, so our indications are tonus zero, tonus one hips um, that are, you know, uh, that are congruent. So if the femoral head is out around, maybe not, not the greatest uh, candidate or patient with extreme BMIs greater than 35 or 40, we're not, those patients don't do as well. So yeah, you, you want to have that preoperative counseling with them and let them know that their outcomes might not be as good. So it's not really worth it at that stage. And then this article mentions a little bit about, I think it's expanded on it in the, in the last article. It mentions that verifying the fragment version before fragment fixation is an important factor. And so the third article is hitting the target, the natural history of hip based on achieving the acetabular safe zone following periacetabular osteotomy. So what, what is the main idea for this study? So this is where dysplasia and impingement are linked, right? This is dysplasia, as you know, is the uncoverage of the femoral head and others could define impingement as a hip that maybe have too much coverage uh, and those, that would be pincer impingement. And so the problem with over covering the head, if you, if you take a hip that dysplastic and, and cover it too far, is that you will turn that hip from a dysplastic hip to an impinging hip. And that is poorly tolerated by these patients. So um, what we, we had always been concerned about over coverage laterally, meaning that you would turn a hip that's uncovered towards the side and maybe over covering it too far would be detrimental. But what we've really shown in this paper is that what is really poorly tolerated is too much anterior coverage. That means the hip that is brought, that the socket is brought forward too far. And that, may, I mean, that makes complete sense because when patients flex their hip or bend their hip forward, they will, they lose range of motion and they will start impinging and that will cause pain, limitations in the range of motion. And then now you're dealing with a separate entity with it, which is this impingement. And for some patients, you have a, you know, you have, you know, an entire, you know, you know, landing area, which is wide because they start out with, you know, a very poor dysplastic hip, uh, poorly covered dysplastic hip. But in some patients with mild hip dysplasia, that landing area is very narrow, meaning that you'll, if you don't, if you turn their hip too far, now they're an impingement hip. And what we've seen in our group as well, as well as data that's coming out from uh, another group in, in the U.S. that does a lot of PAOs with this, which is a Wash U group, that these patients with borderline hip dysplasia don't do as well as the patients with more severe forms of dysplasia. And I think it's because we may be 
I think there's two reasons for that. One is what I've just talked you might be overcorrecting some of these patients, but also there, you know, there might be some indication that patients with milder hip dysplasias have, maybe their, the wiring in their hip is not the same. They may be less tolerant of pain. Right. Another uh, interesting thing I found in the uh, article is things we classically use to describe hip dysplasia with LCEA and tonus angle. This article found that it's more important to address that retroversion at the ACEA angle, and it has a greater out, uh, impact on outcomes. So is there anything you're doing differently intraoperatively to assess retroversion and the anterior center ang angle to improve outcomes? Yeah, so, yes. Yeah, so first of all, you have to make sure you look at those x-rays. Um, and if in doubt about version of the acetabulum, get a CT scan. So the, the worst mistake is, is thinking that um, all dysplastic hips have abnormal anterior coverage. The fact is one in four, maybe one in six hips that are dysplastic will have slight acetabular retroversion. And so if you don't take that into account at the time of your surgery, you will tend to overcorrect anteriorly a lot of this, these hips. Second, is intraoperatively making sure that you have adequate postoperative post-correction range of motion. And so that means that they should have good 95, 100 degrees of flexion, internal rotation to at least 20 degrees at 90 degrees of flexion. If not, look at your x-ray, make sure you haven't overcorrected these. And obviously noting what they have prior to your correction, is important. So if they start out with 45 degrees of internal rotation and now they have five, I mean, you've overcorrected that hip. If they start with, you know, 20 degrees and now you have 15, then that hip is probably okay. And then finally, I will, I will tend to be less aggressive with changes in the version in the mild dysplastic hips, meaning that I will correct their lateral, I will focus on obtaining lateral corruption and not changing their version um, to try to avoid that yeah, iatrogenic uh, impingement. And in some circumstances, um, you know, addressing the femoral head neck junction uh, intraoperatively, either with a scope or through an open approach to help with some of that impingement is important. And that data is out there as well showing that Patients with persistent, um, you know, femoral head neck junction abnormalities and limitations in range of motion may have uh, poor outcomes after PAL surgery. That's a, that's, a, that's a slippery slope though. I'm not 100% sure of that, but I think in some patients with limited range of motion, because what we've shown in one of our papers is if you tackle all those head abnormalities and dysplastic hips, you know, they may have a little flattening and then suddenly you make a concave out of it. They lose that suction seal early and then that could be detrimental to their stability. So uh, don't address every single deformity of the femoral head unless it's a true con you know, convex deformity. Those are really great points, Rafa. And so I'm gonna to try to summarize the points for all these landmark articles, which really taught us a lot about the history of dysplasia. In the first article, 
The idea came about because you wanted to define the natural history of hip dysplasia. And what you found in that study is that patients with hip dysplasia progressed to needing a total hip faster than patients with normal hips or patients with an impingement. And you made a key point about dysplasia progression being unrelated to activity, whereas impingement progression being related to motion and weight bearing. In that second article, we really found out that PAOs decreased the chance of needing hip replacement over long periods of time. And we found out that patients with, uh, after a tonus grade of two, don't do as well as patients with tonus grade zero or one. And then in the last uh, study, we established that verifying fragment version before final fixation is very important. You don't want too much anterior coverage because that's not well tolerated. You said a CT may be necessary for accurate assessment, and you want to make sure you get adequate post-op range of motion to make sure you don't have too much over coverage. And then you also said you're less aggressive in changing version and borderlining hips. Anything else, Rafa? No, I think you've got it all. Thank you. Great summary. Well, those are really great articles. We enjoyed discussing them today, and thank you for being here with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for the invitation.